Beautiful. All right. Good morning, everybody. I've got 25 minutes to tell you all about monkeypox. And I'll bet some of you have seen it in your clinic based on the first question I'll be getting to in just a moment. So let's get started. Uh, I have no financial relationships that I have to disclose. And I have a series of um, learning objectives, all of which are here. They're in your materials. I won't go through them. We'll just go ahead and get started. And let me tell you about monkeypox. Monkeypox virus belongs to the orthopox family. That means viruses here to have right angles or rectangular in this case, although the picture here is circular. There are some very famous members of this family that you might know, including smallpox, the uh, variola virus, vaccinia virus used for vaccination of, against smallpox, as well as cowpox and a whole series of other animal viruses. Monkeypox got its name because it was first discovered in 1958 following two outbreaks in uh, non-human non primate facilities in Denmark. Now, these were animals used for research, and this is not a non-human primate disease, and it just happened to be named monkeypox because that's the first animal in which it was recognized. We don't really know what the reservoir is for monkeypox, but we suspect it's probably small mammals that are running around Africa, and there's a lot of research to try and nail that down right now. This is a picture taken yesterday of the number of cases around the world shown in blue are the in a small the size of the circle corresponds to the total number of cases. The blue circles are the small number of countries in Western and Central Africa where the disease has often been called endemic or where they historically had reported monkeypox and spreading like a rash across the world are the orange dots over 100 countries now in which it's been reported during 2022. Notably, the top countries are listed here in descending order and the United States is number one. We represent over one third of cases in the world, but listen, that's because we have such a large population. Um, luckily, if you look at this epidemic curve of how cases are doing data from the World Health Organizations, cases worldwide peaked sometime in the early to middle part of August and have been steadily declining. Incidentally, this website, Our World in Data, which did great, great work with COVID, if some of you may have used it, I encourage you to go look at it. They have lovely, uh, all kinds of great graphs and stuff that if you're a real nerd, you're going to love looking at. Um, what do we know about the sociodemographic characteristics and clinical characteristics of people who have this disease? This is a paper taken by Thornhill et al. of about 528 patients from 16 countries, seen it, if I recall correctly, uh, 46 different clinical facilities. So a really good mix, general mix of patients. The bottom line in terms of age, their uh, gender, and their sexual orientation, and these are, these are primarily young adult cisgender men having having sex with men. They cut me right off when I said that. You heard that. Okay. <laughs> having sex with men. And that is the um, primary population representing over 95% of people who've been affected by this thus far. We also know that these gentlemen tend to be very sexually active, represented in this case by the fraction who are HIV positive, the median number who were diagnosed with a sexually transmitted infection at the time they were being evaluated for monkeypox, and those with microbiologically I'm sorry, those who uh, reported the median num the number of median sexual partners they reported. Now, I've left this blank here because I wanted to ask my first question to you all today, which is hopefully you listened closely to Roger Bedino the first day. What fraction of monkeypox patients have HIV? This is very relevant for you folks who work in HIV clinics because if you haven't encountered a patient with monkeypox yet, I'm going to show you a number that might give you a one in five odds, hint, hint. A one in two odds, a one in two odds, 50% odds. Let me put it there. All right. I know I'm a mess, Laura. It's not, yeah. All right, let's move on. 40%. Excellent. Excellent. Thank God it's not 
But 40% of patients have HIV. That's very disproportionately overrepresented compared to what we know about MSM in general, who are a very high risk group. Um, so we can talk a little bit later, perhaps in the Q&A, what that means. But summarizing here are some data answering those questions I posed before as to how many folks have HIV, as well as the STI picture and sexual partner picture. And these are collated from left to right. First column is the study I just showed you from Thornhill et al., then a cohort study from Spain, from the UK, and then combined two cohort studies from the US. In the first row, you can see the HIV positivity rate is pretty uniformly 40% with the exception of the UK, but they really are the outlier. Many other cohorts have seen something closer to 40%. In terms of concurrent STIs, these are STIs, sexually transmitted infections, diagnosed at the time they're diagnosed with monkeypox or presenting with monkeypox, 15 to 30%. I mean, that's pretty darn high if you're, I don't know, you all probably have some frequent flyers that are in that category, but this is not typical. Uh, STIs diagnosed in the last 12 months, about 50%. About 50 and if you go all the way over to the right-hand USA column, you can see that there's about a 10% fraction. You've had three or more reported in the last um, uh, 12 months. And then in terms of number of partners, um, on average, five or six over the last three months can be as high as 30% having more than 10, 10 or more in the last uh, three months. And in the last three weeks, as many as 20% have had 10 or more. So these are folks who are very sexually active. And the lesson here for us is you've got to take this opportunity when you're evaluating a person for monkeypox, evaluating a person for monkeypox to test them for STIs. And if their HIV status is not known to you to get that, please, because among the STIs being diagnosed in people with monkeypox is new HIV infection. What do we know about monkeypox in the US? First US case was confirmed in May, introduced by travelers, then spread rapidly domestically. Uh, by uh, mid-August, we had over 10,000 cases. And although the predominance of cases are in uh, men who have sex with men, we have definitely seen plenty of cases in women, a handful of cases in children, and reported yesterday in the MMWR, now healthcare workers who've also been infected. What does the picture look like in terms of the epi curve in this country? Well, like the world, thankfully, it's gone up and it's coming down. The seven-day average is shown there in black. And knock wood, we're going to continue in that same direction. However, despite that progress, one thing we are seeing that really is reflective of HIV is a disproportionality in the people who are affected by the race and ethnic group they belong to. And although early in the uh, outbreak, the majority of cases shown in that blue blueberry color were um, uh, white men, mostly white, well, white persons, but they were predominantly men who have sex with men. Progressively, there's been a substantial fraction of Hispanic and Latinos that is above their fraction represented in the population and a growing fraction of Black and African American. So that the distribution by race ethnicity seen here is not that different from the distribution of HIV in the population in terms of race and ethnicity. In terms of geographic distribution, likewise, you can see that there's a concentration of cases in the Southeast, as well as focal areas in the Northeast, New York, and in California, shown here are the top. So that's kind of like the geographic distribution for HIV. The top six states are also the top six states for new HIV diagnosis, led by California. These six states represent about two thirds of all of the monkeypox infections in the United States, which are approaching 30,000 slowly. So what do we know about the classic form of the illness and how the incubation period has classically been anywhere from one to two to two and a half weeks up to 17 days. And before people develop the rash, almost uniformly in the classic form of disease, they had a prodrome, fever, fatigue, malaise, weakness, and interestingly, 
lot of people had um, lymphadenopathy either in the armpit or around their neck. Then the rash would appear. It can occur very quickly after the first prodromal symptom. And it typically was crops of lesions that would pop up simultaneously and evolve together as the person gets better. Four classic stages of rash progression, my favorite words, you know, flat and red macular, then gets to be a little papular bump, fills with serous fluid and becomes a vesicle. And then that gets to be pussy and you get a juicy pustule that eventually scabs and falls off. Uh, and then you're resolving. What's interesting about these lesions compared to other rash lesions, if you examine a person, is they're very well circumscribed, deep-seated, feeling rubbery. The, as they become more mature, they develop an umbilication or a little hole in the center, like a belly button or a frosted Cheerio, and they are painful. These hurt, both the classic disease and, as you may have learned, the current disease as well. They're very painful. Interestingly, in the classic form of a disease, the distribution body-wise tends to be centrifugal or centrifugal, so on the extremities, hands, arms, feet, and legs, and it can involve the palms and soles, so a little bit like another friend of ours, syphilis. These are some pictures of the classic lesions from some Americans on the left during a 2003 outbreak due to prairie dogs, and on the right to some uh, lesions in uh, West Africa. What I want you to note is you're not seeing any macular or papular lesions here, none of those early lesions. And that's because many people, when they first develop this rash, it doesn't really disturb them. Oh, maybe it's something I ate. It's the dishwashing fluid. I don't know. But once you start getting vesicles and pustules and pain, that drives people to medical care. And so a lot of the pictures we have are from late in the course of the rash. How does transmission occur? Absolutely positively spreads by person-to-person -person contact. It requires direct contact with the infectious rash or the scabs or body fluids like saliva, which may be infectious. Now, that also means that upper respiratory secretions like saliva can possibly uh, transmit the disease during prolonged close contact, sort of pillow talk, or if you're kissing or cuddling or having sex. Um, we know that the there is fomite transmission, so objects that are very heavily contaminated, like clothing or linens with a virus that have been in touch with a person, can be handled by another person and transmit the virus, but they tend to be visibly soiled. Simply wearing a shirt, putting it back on the rack, and then the next customer at Walmart tries it on isn't going to transmit monkeypox. And we can be transmitted through the placenta from mother to child. You're infectious from the time your very first symptom develops, whether it's the prodrome or the lesion, until the last lesion heals the uh, scab forms and falls off. You have a nice clean layer of skin underneath. The rash in the new form of the disease. Now let's talk about how it's different. In the new form of the disease, the rash tends to be centripetal, trapetal, central, really effect, also affecting not just skin, but mucosal areas, particularly genital, perianal, and oral mucosa. And a bit of a trigger warning, I'm sorry, these are important photographs though, just showing you um, some of the anogenital and oral areas and how they look when they're affected by uh, these lesions. Again, note how many of them are already pretty advanced. This is again from the Thornhill paper showing that when people report where they're getting the lesions, 73% of the skin genital area, over 40% report some form of mucosal lesion. And among those mucosal lesions, most of them are anogenital or oropharyngeal. Yeah, so rash was in the center, and that's the big deal, is that it's most, oh, here we go, but let's just cut right to this one. So if there were two things you need to remember about what's different now, less prodrome, I didn't get a chance to tell you that. People are often presenting with the rash first and then maybe symptoms. So it's not a prodrome. Those symptoms are coming after the rash and the rash tends to be very anogenital or centrally focused. All right, you're examining and diagnosing someone. 
You got to get, and I know you do this beautifully, a good sexual history and a travel history for the past 21 days. And in the off chance, you don't elicit a history that fits with your expectation. You might want to ask about foreign travel or animal product exposure, though I haven't heard of anybody having that recently in the US. Most important thing is to perform a good exam. This is a disease where people have lesions on their mucosa they may not yet be aware of. You got to get them to reveal that to you. We are a team working together to understand their disease and get a good light get a good light to get a good look at what's going on. Also, if the rash is present, have a broad differential. I don't know how many of you all noticed in the pictures I showed, but some of those pictures could have been herpes, chelosis, I don't know, could have been a lot of things. And in fact, people describe it looks like, I think this person has varicella or this person might have molluscum. Keep in mind that, that broad differential when you're seeing people, not only because you're going to need to test for STIs and HIV, um, but you're gonna also wanna make sure that people, you don't have a double whammy. We're seeing people with both. I showed you how many people have coincident uh, or concurrent STIs, but we're also seeing people who in the lesion, let's say the chancre they've got for syphilis, also have monkeypox in that chancre. And if you wanna know how to evaluate people for STIs, although I'm sure you're all expert, our most recent guidelines are here. There are some uncommon manifestations of this disease. They include ophthalmologic uh, involvement. There's a picture of a cornea on the bottom left with a great big ulcer on it. And there was a case reported of this in the MNWR yesterday. I think it was five cases of ophthalmic involvement. Neurologic involvement, cardiovascular, and rheumatologic are also all described. And with these images and the EKGs, you can kind of see how that might present. But these are rare and they tend to, they tend to occur on their own. But we do see severe manifestations of disease. This led to a health alert network notice that we put out to alert people to the possibility that we're really worried about one group of patients. People with HIV who have low CD4 cell counts, usually well below 350, who are presenting and may be diagnosed with HIV early and doing okay, and then cruise along and crash. And we don't know what's going on, but it's a, we're up to 20 to 30 cases right now. Some do have other conditions, but the vast majority are HIV affected. Um, these people are developing a typical or persistent rash, so they'll have confluent big lesions or necrotic lesions and lots of lesions, and new crops keep popping up despite attempts to treat with a drug I'll talk about in a moment. They can have multiple organ systems involved, not just one thing in the eye, but the eye, the brain, you know, all these kinds of things. They can develop obstructive lesions leading to strictures in the bowel uh, or um, such bad necrotic lymphadenopathy that they require uh, these lesions can also lead to strictures with bowel or urethral stricture or some very uh, unfortunate cosmetic scarring, especially if it's in a sensitive area. And then without good skin integrity, because this is a rash that's wrecking your skin integrity, you're very wide open to the possibility of secondary bacterial or fungal infection. And that's, this has led to sepsis and death in some people. So again, another opportunity, test for STIs and HIV in people who are being seen for advanced disease as well. Sometimes we think about making sure the person's intubated and supporting them hemodynamically and forgetting to check for the possibility they've got syphilis. Or in the person who hasn't had their HIV diagnosed, think about somebody who was diagnosed with monkeypox, cruised for a couple of weeks and crashed. Had I tested for HIV initially, could I have possibly offered antiretroviral therapy and changed the course of that person's life? Ticoviramat is the main available that we have available for monkeypox right now. This is an FDA-approved drug for smallpox, not monkeypox, under something called the animal rule, which means that we don't have any human data on the effectiveness, but it's been demonstrated safe when given to uninfected humans. This was first made available through an investigational drug protocol at CDC, 
we had it pre-written because we were gonna be using it for research in Africa, but could pull it right off the shelf and get the drug to people. But it's also made available through a large um, clinical trial being sponsored by NIH. In fact, Dr. Tim Wilkin, who was here the first day, is talking about papillomavirus, is the PI for that trial. I'm sorry he's, he had to go home because I was hoping he could see how I'm gonna really ask you all to think about enrolling people into this important clinical trial. How does ticoviramat work? The drug inhibits this viral envelope protein that's part of the wrapping complex intracellularly. So this virus likes to put on a big coat before it goes out into the world and face more cells. Uh, and what this drug does is targets vaccinia protein number 37 or VP37, if you want to sound really smart, they really love it, VP37, um, stops the spread of the virus, can't go further. Oh, and I should note one thing here. You see how the trade name of the drug is TPOX, T-P-O-X-X? Just FYI, uh, if you have a net nanny, when it sees double Xs, it often says no, no. Yeah, so when you're gonna go use the word ticoviramat, because a lot of people go to search like TPOX and they get blocked on their internet thing because they think it's a porn site. I, the manufacturer should have thought about this. Okay, you know, what can I, what, I don't know. All right. What is our guidance for the use of the drug? Well, it has been getting used heavily for people who may not need it. We wanna redirect people to really think about its use for those who most need it. Severe disease, involvement of a sensitive anatomic area, high risk for severe disease for the conditions shown below. And if you want some help, we have a clinical consultation service that I'd love to refer you to, to please give us a call. We can learn together because we are learning too about what you're doing. That helps us learn to teach other people I'm not gonna go through all the things we talk about, you can read them, but pay attention to the email address, EOC event 482, and the phone number at the bottom, somebody will, somebody will get back to you and help you out 24 seven. This is the STOMP trial that I just mentioned, that clinical trial looking at the utility of um, ticoviramat to treat disease, stands for the study of ticoviramat for human monkeypox virus, ACTGA5418. This is an opportunity for persons with disease of any severity to get access to the drug, but we're especially interested in those who have mild to moderate disease who, you know, you may not want to necessarily give the drug because they're not so sick yet, um, but if they want to get access to it, this is a great way to do it. Note that people, um, there are over 65 clinical centers that are enrolling uh, or planning to enroll shortly, and they're designing a fully remote option, which means this is very, very innovative for the ACTG, that you'll be able to enroll from home or from the clinic of your choice and not have to transport yourself to an ACTG center, which when you're dealing with a disease that we recommend, by the way, people isolate until they're fully recovered, that's a nice, that could be a good way to handle it. Also, really people are randomized two to one to the real thing versus placebo because there's a lot of anecdotal evidence and also animal evidence that this drug should work. And we wanna give people the better chance to get the real thing in case it works. And if there's evidence of disease progression, you'll be switched to the real drug. Um, and if you come in to the trial, meet enrollment criteria, um, but, are, but have one of the conditions I showed in the prior slide, you're severely ill or at risk for complications, they will give you the real drug, but they wanna use that opportunity to monitor your progress and collect serial specimens so we can better understand how long people shed infectious virus from different parts of their body. This is the number you can call, and damn it, Stomp T-P-O-X-X, they did it too. And I had a heck of a time trying to get online to see this trial, but I, I, got, I got an exemption. <laughs> I thought for sure I was gonna get a call from the White House or something. <laughs> You're surfing that T-Box website again. 
I'm like, oh, he's so sexy. <laughs> you know, these people are crazy. Okay, um, vaccine. Some say Genios, some say Geneos, potato, potato, I don't really care. All you need to know, this vaccine is specifically designed for people with HIV and has been demonstrated safe in people with HIV. The existing vaccine called ACAM2000 is a live replicating virus. So this vaccinia virus in the ACAM2000 can cause disseminated disease in people who are immunosuppressed, a disease called progressive vacciniosis or vaccinia. This is recognizing that in the event of a smallpox terrorist event, we need to protect people who are immunosuppressed. Um, the government invested in producing a vaccine that was an attenuated version of the ACAM 2000 that replicate that was non-replicating but live. And so they did a lot of the tests in people with HIV. A friend of ours, Turner Overton, um, did some of those, uh, who you probably know well, Mike, from uh, UAB, did some of those studies. And so this is known to be safe in people with HIV infection. It's also effective. These are data that were published a couple of weeks ago looking at people 14 days after their first dose, not their second dose, their first dose, compared to those who hadn't gotten the vaccine at all. And those who'd gotten the vaccine were 14 times less likely to get monkeypox than those that did. I look forward to how the data we're going to look when we get people that second dose of vaccine. All right. Now, biomedical interventions are fantastic. And they're a lot easier than behavioral interventions, as I'm sure many of you know. We love them. But we also like to change behavior if we can do it. And we have observed that in surveys, gay, bisexual, same gender loving, and other men who have sex with men have changed their behavior when it comes to um, protecting themselves and their partners from monkeypox. What I want to ask you is what fraction of these men report having changed their behavior in a way that would reduce their risk? Why don't you go ahead and vote here and then I'll show you what the data were. While you're doing that, I'll give you a lot of time to fill this in. Uh, I'll note that um, we did a modeling study where we took a theoretical population of 10,000 people, introduced 10 people, 10 men with monkeypox, who were relatively sexually active in a way that we have been seen described here. We distributed, we, we let them in the model, we let them behave sexually the way we see people behave. So only 3% were having one night stands, if you will. And most were with a steady partner where a few had one on the sides, you know, extra stuff on the side, but there's only 3% who were having one night stands. Let me see, I will tell you once we look at the results, what fraction of those 3% contributed to the total number of infections and what by reducing their behavior by 40% did. So 50%, excellent, that's really good. I see 30% is in there, but it's 50%. I mean, it is pretty daggone remarkable that we got a behavior change of this phenomenon. Imagine if you could get one out of every two of your smokers to quit right there. I, okay, this is amazing. Um, and in this study I just described, when we had people reduce their behavior by 40%, so on the order of this, we cut the total number, not only did the total number of infections get cut in half, but the rise to that lower number was slower. So we slowed it and it was cut off. So the bottom line here is that one of the reasons I think we're seeing cases go down in the United States is vaccination and awareness behavior change, and then also probably something which we uh, politely refer to as exhausting the vulnerables, which is the people who are most vulnerable to the infection have now either been vaccinated, changed their behavior, or had it, and are now immune as a result of having had it, and it's not enough to sustain ongoing transmission and we're watching cases fall off. Be curious to see what the future holds if this does become something endemic, and we can talk about that uh, in just a moment. Oh, right on time. 
Um, <laughs> so here are the answers to the learning objectives that I gave you before. You can read these and use them to fill in your forms later. But I don't want to walk away without reminding you, take these people you're seeing, test them for STIs. And if you don't know their HIV status, which I hope most of you do, please establish it because it's important in this disease. Thank you very much. Um, thanks. So one of the questions was, what's your recommendation about healthcare workers getting vaccinated? Yeah, it's a good question. So um, in the current recommendations for vaccination, it includes healthcare work. It, 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 I don't have it verbatim at the tip of my tongue, but there is a provision for healthcare workers or laboratory workers who may have a lot of close contact. So if you see yourself in that uh, position, I would certainly consider pursuing with your organization, getting the vaccine or your local health department, which can provide it. Um, I, I got vaccinated because I was collecting specimens during Southern decadence in New Orleans. And you know, it was kind of unpredictable and our, my employer wanted to make sure that we were all covered. Um, on the other hand, it has not been strict, it has not been recommended up until now to kind of broaden that to all healthcare workers, and we really rely on PPE. And I want to emphasize the importance of PPE for just a moment. You know, it sounds horrible that you've got to dress up in riot gear to go see somebody with, a, you know, that's suffering from this disease. And when we deal with, when I deal with a patient with STIs, I'm usually just gloved. You know what I'm saying? I'm not coming in like, you know, they're an alien. But we have unfortunately seen cases of people without wearing full PPE who've gotten infected in the healthcare setting. Um, so the recommendation holds. Uh, but you might want to also consider vaccination. And one of it. the questions to that end about is asking just about the real requirement for N95. Yeah, I mean, we, you know, yeah, I think, I mean, we said, okay, party line is you have to wear an N95. But if that, if you can't get a hold of an N95, you can double mask yeah. um, and you can do other things. But I think that respiratory coverage as for you as the provider, as uh, yeah. personal protection matters. And you might want to also, if you're pretty certain the person has monkeypox, put a mask on them as source control. Yeah. Um, okay, so what about resistance to T-pox? Are you concerned about Boy, it? Have you seen it? I, okay, first, we haven't seen it yet, but we're sure concerned. FDA um, did some studies a couple of years ago, um, but the findings were not disclosed publicly because they met something called dual use potential, which means that they had the possibility of being misused by someone to create a virus that could be made resistant to drugs. It turns out that this virus, oh, thank you, that this virus um, has a very low threshold for inducing resistance and a single amino acid change in one of as many 12 positions can make the virus completely resistant to this drug. That was another reason why you may have experienced hearing that it feels more difficult to get Ticoviramax Ticoviramat uh, for patients because we are concerned enough about the resistance that we want to limit its use to the people who really need it and then use the RCT to determine when the best time to use the drug right, is. Right, which gets to another question that said there was one patient who had widespread uh, lesions and was denied the. Yeah, the I mean, that, I don't know. Because I mean, of, yeah. All yeah. Right. I mean, was, you know, that sometimes people interpret things their own way. Yeah. What about transmission um, from a person to animals in case of a mm -hmm. dog or whatever? So there was a well-known, <laughs> the greyhound, the Italian greyhound story, yes. There was a, a widely reported case of two gay men who had a pet Italian greyhound who slept in bed with them, but that's all they did. And the greyhound ended up with an anal lesion because they licked their butts. If you have dogs, you know, they're licking their butt all the time. There was nothing nefarious or naughty going on here. 
Um, and the concern was, oh my God, these people transmitted to the dog, maybe the dog could transmit back to people. It's a concern we have, but we haven't seen a lot of it. And we've done a couple of big investigations in DC and uh, testing all the pets of people yeah. and they've come back positive. The other point I'll make is the reason to be concerned about this is, is I'm not so worried about um, mammal pets that people have as I am about small rodents. And you know, one of the nightmare scenarios I think for um, people like yeah. Lori Garrett, you know, is oh my gosh, what if it got into the rats of the sewers of New York? Um, you know, and starts spreading. Yeah, no, the, so no sex in the sewer. Yeah, the mutant mutant ninja turtles. Mutant ninja turtles. Like um, but we haven't seen it. Let me just. The good news is, if this were a public health it might have emerged. <laughs> okay, so um, what about, do we know anything yet about uh, the potential for the virus to be in body secretion, saliva, uh, vaginal secretions, or uh, et cetera, uh, semen, prior to the onset of overt symptoms? We do, and in fact, there's a, we put a review up on the internet today, East Coast Time, that looks at the prevalence of what we know of and transmission, just hold this thing because it's just weird, about detection and transmission of the virus in different locations. And it basically shows that we can detect the DNA in many different body fluids, with the exception of vaginal fluids and breast milk, which we haven't really had a chance to test, but um, or saliva, semen, uh, feces, um, anal, mucosal anal swabs, perfectional swabs, uh, also in blood. But the only places where the virus has been reliably grown from, so replication competent virus, has been oropharynx, anus, um, and, oh shoot, I'm forgetting the third one, that's embarrassing. Anorectum, that's right. Anorectum, oh, and the skin lesions, skin lesions, right, skin lesions. Okay, um, but the others, it hasn't. So we don't, we don't have enough data to say if they can transmit. Right, and the lesions, as long as they're present, are presumed to be potentially infectious. To That's correct. Yeah. But the point that was, I think the person is making here is could you be could you be asymptomatically infected and transmit pre-symptomatically, right? And there have been cases of people for sure in whom they have um, got residual specimens, looked at them, they were collected from people who reported nothing, no illness at the time, but they turned out to have monkeypox. But is there replication competent virus there? It, there is in some cases in a anal swab or a urethral swab, but was that possible? Is there epidemiologic evidence that they were, that, that there was enough virus to transmit? And that's what we're lacking. Yeah. One practical question, somebody gets vaccinated, then they get monkeypox uh, five days later. Do they need the second shot? Yeah. You know, I don't think we recommend a second shot in that circumstance. Yeah. We believe the infection is sufficiently immunizing Common to protect sense. you. We, and yeah. we haven't seen recurrent disease um, either in Western Central, Western or Central Africa country yet yeah i think we've asked some of these already um how long do you think the uh genius uh, vaccine will stay effective we don't know we're gonna yeah we've never had this many people who needed to get it right <laughs> and smallpox la the vaccine lasts a long time it does it lasts for a long time although it does attenuate a yeah. little bit over time and just for people who ask the question um if i'm vaccinated against smallpox am i protected against monkeypox we believe it does confer some protection, but it's not absolute. We've got plenty enough people who've had the smallpox vaccine who've gotten monkeypox. Any concerns about giving the monkeypox vaccine at the same time somebody might get other vaccines like flu or yep. COVID? Or so the, there is a theoretical concern that the monkeypox vaccine could cause myocarditis or pericarditis. Uh -huh. um, and so you may not want to administer another vaccine that could do the same thing. 
that would be the COVID mRNA vaccines. What we recommend is staging them a couple of uh, days or weeks apart. But I also am a person of the philosophy, having been in public health practice long enough to say, you got them in front of you, you may not see them again. And if you think that's the circumstance, this is more of a theoretical risk than a known risk. And if they're not a young man, many of these are middle-aged men, but I'm talking more like, you know, uh, late adolescence, early 20s, then you probably you might be able to consider more confidently getting both. Right. Great. Well, we're out of time, but uh, I think we got to a lot of questions and thank you for a wonderful review. And I'll be here if folks have other questions. Yeah. Great. Thank you very much, guys. <laughs>